what happened there, funny enough, is that article was supposed to be published before the pandemic happened, but then the pandemic happened and they said they're going to shelve it. You're listening to The Right Club Podcast, where the focus is all about helping you grow your real estate investment portfolio and live the life you want to live. Come grow with us and join our community at therightclub.com. And now your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi. Hello, Right Club Nation. It's Laurel Simmons here. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Have you checked out our online community yet? I really hope you do because our online community is a place where you can find lots of education, training, and information about real estate investing and about general business. Plus, it's a great place to network with like-minded people. We have interactive forums, all our podcast episodes, and tons of videos about a wide range of topics. It's free to join, so be sure to come grow with us at therightclub.com. Now, on with our podcast. Right Club community, welcome back to another episode of the Right Club podcast. I'm Sarah Larby, and today I have a special co-host with me, our one and only Francois Lantier. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to co-host the podcast with you. Awesome. So we are interviewing Austin Ye today, who has recently left his nine-to-five job. He's scaled a portfolio using joint venture and private money, and he has also started a um, division on wholesaling. So we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, Francois, this is your first time in. Are you able to, or as a co-host, are you able to just give us a little bit of information? I know you work with the Right Club or you work you know, alongside us. Can you give us a little bit of, of, of information on, on who you are and, uh, and your investing uh, portfolio? Because it's, it's pretty impressive. Oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, who am I? Um, so I'm also one of the members of the, the FIRE movement. So I quit my job in November 2020. So kind of at the height of the pandemic, but I've been investing only for about 19 months as we speak. So by the time it's released, maybe 21 months, we'll see. And uh, I've been able to scale quite a bit by buying through joint ventures and private lending. So similar to what you're going to hear in the interview Austin, what he's done, I've done something similar, and I agree with everything he says. Take his advice, uh, put systems in place, and please uh, vet your joint venture partners. It's very important for your success. Awesome, and uh, and that's like that's almost a record. I feel like 19 months left your full time job, and uh, you know, congrats. But that's uh, that's just very inspirational. And Austin has a very inspirational story as well. You know, it's it's just great to see people taking action, but, but also being calculated because it's, it's important not to over leverage. Uh, it's important to plan for the good and it's important to plan for the bad. So we do have a discussion about that. I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. And if you haven't gone to the right check it out. We've just revamped our, our entire website. We are adding new things all the time. Uh, and we spent hours and hours and lots of blood, sweat and tears <laughs> that went into putting that. So please go ahead and, and register. It is free. There's tons of content there. There is uh, forums that you can connect with other investors, ask questions, get answers, um, meet some of our team members. If you need a lawyer, an accountant, a bookkeeper, all of that stuff, there's a whole directory. So don't forget to check out therightclub.com. On that note, let's bring in Austin. Austin, welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing well. How are you guys? Very good. So I've got a special co-host with me today, Francois Lantier 
who is also a real estate investor and uh, has done some tremendous work with us at the Right Club. And together, we're really happy to have you on. And Austin, you, you've, you've been on these podcasts. You've been on my podcast before. You've got an amazing story. And I will say, first and foremost, congratulations on quitting your nine to five job. Um, <laughs> having invested in real estate allowed that for you. So congrats, buddy. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, uh, I feel like it was a long time in the making, but it, it actually wasn't too long. <laughs> it was a long grind. When, when you're not enjoying what you do, it feels like it's been forever. <laughs> so let's take a step back and walk us through how you got started in real estate investing in the first place and, uh, and what your main strategy was. Yeah, so I got started in real estate investing in 2018. Picked, I'll keep it short and concise, but picked up the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, like a lot of uh, newer investors. One of my buddies recommended it over to me, and uh, prior to that, I was trying to invest in stocks, lost money. I just, I just knew that I didn't want to stay in corporate forever, but didn't know my means out. So when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, that was really kind of a light bulb in my head, and I uh, was like, okay, maybe I should start investing in real estate. But I knew almost nothing about it because it's more of a mindset book than anything. So I went on YouTube, watched a couple of videos, and thought this should be simple enough because like a lot of the time strategies sound easier to do than they are actually executed. And I had about $40,000, couldn't afford anything in Toronto at the time. So went out to Windsor and bought my property there for $130,000. And along the way there, I made a ton of mistakes. We talked about that in the first podcast, so I won't reiterate all the mistakes, but it was definitely a nightmare. However, still panned out with a good ARV after repair value. So I was able to refinance and then buy multiple properties after that. Excellent. That's a great way to get started. I mean, $40,000 as well. The market was very different. Windsor now 40k. I'm not sure if you could. Could you buy a place with 40k down now unless it's your first buy half a place? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe a condo, but but not a house. No, if you're, no, moving, in, if you're moving into it with 5%, you might be able to find something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exciting. Great. Uh, and how have things changed for you since the last podcast? So you mentioned you were interviewed last time and now you've quit your job and all that, but has your investment focus changed or? Yeah, no, definitely a lot has changed from the last podcast. So I think last time we were chatting, I was talking about getting into joint ventureships. I had probably like a couple under my belt. Um, following that podcast, thank you guys. You gave me some good clout. So <laughs> had a ton of more people reach out still was still hitting social media hard branding building credibility and uh, got a couple of more joint ventureships it was mainly operating around windsor in the small multifamily, single family space and then of course there was the huge pandemic and uh was worried that i was going to lose a considerable amount of my wealth because i was definitely over leveraging myself so following that experience i learned to slow things down a bit more um, and then grow at a more sustainable pace. And at the same time, joint ventureships, I realized they're amazing, but it's, it's definitely when you don't have the right systems in place. And at that time I was definitely struggling with systems. Cause I grew, like, I guess I grew my portfolio relatively quick without having the ability to look in hindsight and patch up any small systems or mistakes that I had along the way. So as I grew my portfolio really quick, I realized that like, it, it's probably better that I start growing naturally myself with private money lenders and start holding these assets on my own because with the joint venture, I get 50% of the asset. I do all of the work. 
And uh, yeah, to, to get to the same size as if I was just to own things myself, I have to do double the amount of work if I don't have the right systems in place. So that's something that I've been definitely toying around with more. So when I'm doing more recent acquisitions, I try to do it myself with private money as opposed to joint ventureships. Not that I'm totally against that or anything, but I just need to wait for the right partner, right? Uh, like a truly passive partner. On top of that, I was featured on the Toronto Life article and that came with a lot of uh, hate and fame. So that was a weird experience. What happened there, funny enough, is that article was supposed to be published before the pandemic happened. Um, but then the pandemic happened and they said they're going to shelve it. And then just randomly out of the blue, they called me like two, three days in advance and like, hey, we're going to put it out. And they a lot of key information was missing there. They couldn't put everything out there. Um, so I was getting a lot of hate from people. They were just like, oh, he owns 1% of every asset that he mentioned in the article. Um, and then of course, like landlord hate group, so on and so forth. Um, so that was an interesting experience, but um, any, I guess any publicity is good publicity. A lot of the followers who were inspired by it sticked with me along the journey. So that definitely helped grow uh, my credibility, branding, following. And that translated into starting um, different things as well. So the Rise Network Group, which is uh, the real estate community that I have founded and uh, host around Toronto, that has grown as a direct result of that Toronto life notoriety, that big article. Um, and then the podcast that I also host as well has also grown as a result of that. In hey, terms Austin, of- hey, Austin, Austin, hey, man, I, I got to stop you because you were saying yeah. like so much good, <laughs> valuable stuff. And, and I want to dig into it a, a little bit. So I, I do want to talk about over leveraging because I think that's going to be something that's going to be important for us to have a good pulse on. But before uh, before that, I do want to say congrats on the article. And, and, I, and I do want to point out, you know, unfortunately, it is pretty crazy. And I've had a similar situation as you when the Toronto Star published, you know, my story on the front page. And, and I got so much hate for owning more than one property. I shouldn't be owning, you know, more than one properties. I'm a, I'm a slumlord. I'm this, I'm that. There's just a lot. It, and and it's, it's kind of funny because they warned me. And, and ironically enough, I actually did not have Facebook back then. I didn't have Instagram back then. I really just had LinkedIn. Um, so the hate lucky. came from, <laughs> I think it was like the Reddit stuff and like, you know, all of that stuff. But, but I, I will say it, it's just, you know, it's, you do, we do it to inspire. We, we don't do it to be like, Hey, look at me, look what I have. I thought your story was really well-written. Of course, it's going to get taken out of contest context, unfortunately, but I think you got a really inspirational story. And, you know, like at the end of the day, guys, I mean, I, I know we're talking to the choir people that are, that are listening to this are, are obviously inspired by your story. Um, but it is crazy, right? The higher that you, you get up in terms of publicity or, or, um, you know, features that you, yeah, you get the more, the more, unfortunately, the more hate that you get. And, uh, but I, I want to say congratulations. Cause you know, that was a great article and, uh, and the people, um, that reached out to you for, for the good and to be inspired. I mean, kudos to you guys that, that did that, but, but I want, do you want to take a step back? Because like you, you, you say so many good things and I'm like, Oh, I want to ask you more about this. <laughs> okay. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about leveraging because mm-hmm. I think it is going to be um, you know, in the next two, three, four years, I don't know when there's, there's going to be a bit of a wake up call for investors. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen, but it is going to be important that you can ride the ups and you can ride the downs, whatever they look like. They might not be that bad or they could be bad. What are some things that you did? And you probably did something similar before you left your job as well to ensure that you are not in a situation where one little disaster, you're bankrupt. Like what are some of the things that you did in order to not over leverage? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that I realized is that with a T4 income, it's much easier to get to get refinances. Any loan from the bank is significantly easier when you have stable income. Um, so knowing that, I made sure to try to maximize 
my ability to get unsecured lines of credit, not pulling the money out, but being able to tap into several different banks for lines of credit. So right now I have over $150,000 in unsecured line of credit. I did that all within the period of a week. And the reason being is because I didn't want everything to hit in my bureau score. If I was to do it in two months or like three months over, like to take my sweet time with it, then like the banks are going to be like, what the hell is going on? Right. So I did that all actually it was all in one day. Like I just applied to all of these things. I set like four or five hours aside. Um, so got all of that just in case of, if shit hits the fan, then I, I still have uh, liquidity to access. Uh, tried to complete as many refinances as possible. I wasn't able to do as much refinances as I like. I still have one or two properties. That I still need to refi, which is like damn near impossible now. Um, but I, I did refi all of my other properties um, or, or have it in HELOC. So if I need it, I can pull that liquidity out again. Um, those are the main things that I did. And I also made sure that I had at least minimum six figures in, in, in cash reserves, which is a lot for a lot of people because people say you usually need six to eight months in emergency funds. But when you're dealing with real estate assets, and again, like if something happens with the roof furnace, that's like a couple thousand out of your pocket. If a tenant stops paying rent, which was a huge fear of mine during COVID when the pandemic first hit. And I was like, this would drive me bankrupt, right? So I made sure that I had at least six figures in liquidity, like actual cash. And uh, I'm, uh, for a lot of investors, it's hard to hold that money because you're like, oh, it's like depreciating over time. It's it's cash, right? It's not making me any return. But for me, it gives me a peace of mind, which honestly, like I would take lower returns any day for a little bit of peace of mind to help me sleep at night. Um, yeah, I mean, those were the things that I did in preparation to leaving the job. I wanted to make sure everything was refinanced. All my liquidity was in check. So if worse comes to worse, I could still survive um, for at least at least a year, right? And then I can try go crawling back to my corporate job if I really need to. Not ideal, but <laughs> that was the game plan. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Building Stack. Building Stack is a software and a platform that helps make our lives so much easier as real estate investors and landlords. And Building Stack actually helps us from anything from collecting rent, finding tenants, filling vacancies, communicating to our staff and our tenants, and anything from even signing documents and leases online. There's so much more as well. And they're a great solution for any portfolio size. I mean, even if you have like one or two properties or hundreds of properties, there is going to be an opportunity for you to utilize this to make your lives so much easier. And as you know, I say work on the business, not in the business. And this is a great software to be able to do that and manage your portfolio as efficiently as possible. So visit buildingstack.com or email sales at buildingstack.com. And also make sure to mention the right club because there is a great promo and a discount that you get for that. So again, buildingstack.com and mention the promo code, the right club. And now back to the show. Cool. And then you mentioned earlier joint ventures. So some of it, like maybe talk to us about pros and cons. And you also mentioned systems. So having some systems in place, I'm going through that myself. So I can totally relate. <laughs> so if you could expand on this, please. Yeah, definitely. I think joint ventures are absolutely amazing. If you take the time and grow it at a sustainable pace and build systems around it. So what I was doing prior, I guess some of the mistakes that I did with joint ventureships is, is that I was still doing all of the bookkeeping myself, right? I was thinking, oh, you know what? Like I can save 
50, 100, 150 bucks a month. So I'm not going to outsource bookkeeping. Um, I was trying to do everything myself pretty much from beginning to end of the transaction without outsourcing much other than the contracting, of course. But um, yeah, I mean, and I was, I was trying to grow at a rapid pace as well. So obviously those two things are not, I, at one point I'm going to drop the ball on something. Um, so I just was up all day, all night working and it was extremely stressful. So um, in terms of joint venturship, some of the, some of the cons with it is, is that, as I mentioned a bit earlier, you're getting 50% of the asset while doing all of the work, right? If you can raise money and do it yourself completely, again, you have to qualify for the mortgage as well. That's probably a preferable route, right? Because you're doing all of the heavy lifting, you're sourcing the deal. Capital is just one aspect of things. And if you get private lending, it's theoretically cheaper capital because you're still keeping 100% of the equity. Debt is cheaper than equity if you know what you're doing, right? So that's one of the cons. Another con is, is that you are technically reporting to another boss, right? And it is stressful because When things go wrong in real estate, I understand that things will go wrong and I can pivot and make decisions on the spot. And it's unfortunate, but I learned to live with it. But when you're dealing with someone else's money, sometimes no matter how much you prepare someone for it, it doesn't completely ring true in their head until something comes up and then you got to explain it to them. And the conversation can, it can be, it can be tough, right? Because not everyone understands because they're not the expert, like you're the expert. And, and it could be tough conversations to navigate, right? But it's the reality of real estate investing. Maybe that just, I just chalk it up to myself. I should better prepare investors that things can hit the fan. I do let them know, but maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I just need to keep on stressing that point. And, and that's tough, again, when you're dealing with joint venture money. It's much easier and less stressful when you're dealing with your own money, oddly enough. The pros of joint ventureship, obviously, like someone is qualifying for the financing. So like if you if you're self-employed like myself, that is a huge W because it is so hard to qualify for financing. I find um, there are ways around it, obviously. Right. But uh, in general, like it, it, it's tougher. You're going to be paying highest higher interest or generally higher down payment for the most part. Um, also another, another pro is that of course scalability. So um, that that's a big thing that's self-explanatory. And um, there's one more point I was going to make slip my mind. Maybe if I remember, I'll try to bring it back up. Oh no, I remember what it is. You don't, you don't run out of, you don't run out of capital, right? You're literally using someone else's capital. So when there are things like capital call, depending how you structure your JV, when there are things like capital calls, like during, during the pandemic, right? Like if you were to get a bunch of private money, you would definitely be like pooping your pants. But like, if you have multiple joint venture partners and each joint venture partner does have like still liquidity in the background, it's not as stressful right? Because not all of the capital calls and financial burdens are going to be on you. But uh, those are some of the quick pros and cons of JVs. Cool. So, I mean, it, it is interesting because because on this call, we've actually all left our nine to five job, but we've all done it in a bit of a different way, right? And so like for me, I qualified with my T4 income and, and I've scaled it. And, uh, you know, only now that I'm, I'm out, I'm bringing in some partners to do some bigger deals, but you know, there are pros and cons. So it, you know, I think the pro is, is you're not sharing. If you're taking action, you're not sharing the cash flow. You're, you're able to refinance. You're able to have that control over your assets. Um, but there is definitely some pros. Cause I mean, Francois, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, but you, you've been doing, I don't know how many properties you, you have right now, but you left your, your nine to five, uh, job and you did this entirely with JVs. 
Yes. So yeah, absolutely. I really agree with what Austin is saying at first. I mean, some of your partners are new and getting started. So one thing I do now, one of my systems is really to interview my JV partners and kind of run through some bad scenarios. What if I die? What if you die? What if your spouse dies? Uh, what if you get divorced? Like there's all kinds of things or what if we lose $10,000 and the, the place sits empty for six months? So those are kind of systems that you, uh, you can do uh, for joint ventures. But I agree with you. Now you have multiple bosses. But when I contract at JV, I tell them as well, this is a working relationship. We're, we're getting married for a few years. So you have to get along very well. And yeah, it's been, it's been really good. And all my partners have been excellent. I've had one exit And actually, we parted ways in a very positive way because everything was prepared from day one, like built into the agreement. I'm sure your JV agreements have some sort of exit plan and early exit like penalty or different things. So there's mechanisms you can put in place. That's a good point. Austin, what do you have for your exits? That's a great point, Francois. Yeah, so exit, it's a five-year term. If both parties mutually agree to sell the property before the five-year term, then we go ahead and, and sell it, right? Um, after that, we can choose to renew it for another year term, and then we go buy that. And then we don't have a shotgun clause, right? Um, I know some investors put that in, but I find that that's okay, probably... Wait, so for anybody listening, what's a shotgun clause? I Okay, so I would, I'll give an example, right? I'm better at explaining examples than the actual textbook definition of what it is. Basically what a shotgun clause is, is that if one party wants to sell a property and the other party doesn't want to sell the property, the party that wants to sell the property can basically go to, you know what, I'll use party A and B. Party A wants to sell the property. Party B wants to keep the property. Party A will go to party B and say, hey, I want you to buy me out for $100,000, right? And if party B says, no, I don't want to buy you out for $100,000. Let's keep this asset. Basically party A now has to buy party B share at $100,000, right? So it forces kind of an escape, right? So there's not really much discussion in it. It forces an escape. Um, and the issue I have with that is, is that the party with more capital at the time is usually gonna, is gonna win, right? For example, if someone is in, I don't know, like a capital, maybe they have several projects on the go, they only have $10,000. I could go to him and be like, buy my share out for 20,000. I know he can't afford it or she can't afford it, right? And then they're like, no, I can't, I can't afford it. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to buy you up for $20,000, right? So it's probably, it's, it's not the best clause to have in there. In my opinion, my lawyer definitely advised against it. Um, what I go for instead is, I forgot what the exact term is, but essentially if, uh, if one party wants to sell, yeah, I don't know the, the technical term, but if one party wants to sell, um, the other party has the option to buy them out or find, or find another partner to buy them out. And if I can't buy them out or I can't find another partner to buy them out, then we take it on the market, right? And the, the amount that we decide to buy them out at is based on three individual appraisers going in the property and getting an average of those three appraisals. Do you know what the technical term is? I forgot what it, oh, I can't believe I, yeah, I forgot what it's called. <laughs> I, I, don't re- I don't really do that many JVs, but it sounds like a good good clause. And, and guys like, you know, we aren't lawyers, walk, walk through this with your lawyer. Um, I had Carson Law do, do my JV agreement for, for the time that, uh, that I will be doing it in the future. Um, so how much of your portfolio is JVs percentage-wise versus, uh, you know, you owning the, your own assets? Um, yeah, so I think all of my portfolio 
has been partnerships and but not JVs necessarily. Like I consider an asset my girlfriend and I own as a partnership. So we own a, everything is a partnership. But in terms of JVs, where like raise the capital, I'm the active partner. I want to say like 70 70 percent of it is, is still JVs. I've recently pivoted more towards partnerships where I put in capital, my buddy puts in capital, but we both bring something to the table in terms of managing the property. Uh, yeah, that's the preferential route. And and by the way, Francois, you mentioned a very good point about the setting the expectations at the beginning. Yes. That's definitely something that I need to do better. So I do mention it, but I like how you pivot the conversation literally to be maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of what if something goes wrong, right? And then, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go through all the horror stories and get it out. Then you'll see their reaction. And then now's the time to part ways. If you're not in agreement before you have a property, yes, move on. That's my anyway. It's really mm -hmm. worth it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And one thing that I do need to keep in mind as well is, is that, again, like I'm not opposed to JVs. I don't want it to come out that way. Um, I would like to say all of my JV partners and I have a great relationship. However, going forward, if I was to explore joint ventureships, it has to be with like one or two parties who have a lot of capital who are going to fund me for multiple deals, as opposed to 10 or 15 different people, because that's 10 or 15 people to manage. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, Right Club Nation, I just wanted to take a moment and introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, privatebuyers.ca. On your team of experts, you're going to want to make sure that you have a great wholesaler that's going to bring you some great deals off market. So most real estate investors, they're struggling to find their next deal. Private buyers, they help investors by bringing them some off-market opportunities at under market value so that they can make more money. These discounted real estate deals are not on the MLS. They've been found by privatebuyers.ca who will then send them to your inbox. And they're also gonna focus on your criteria and your goals and send you some tailored deals that match your needs. It's just really simple, guys. Just go to privatebuyers.ca, fill out the form and start getting and seeing some available off-market opportunities. Privatebuyers.ca. Now back to the podcast. And now back to the show. I mean, that, that makes sense. So, so then you pivoted, so you pivoted to private money yeah. and, uh, and, and for those, you know, that may not know, there's lots of ways that you can get private money, but what are some of the things that you've done, uh, or, or, or companies that you've reached out to, I don't know if they're mixed or whatnot, but like, you know, where is, where is your private money coming from and, and how are you getting that structured in and out of it? Yeah. So very fortunately for me, um, I spent a lot of time building a brand, right? So it's kind of easier for me since people, I like, I, I don't go out and ask for private money and more so that I attract it by building a brand. But one thing that I am going to implement <clears throat> that I have explored is, is that so Waylon McGill, my business partner and I, we have a wholesaling business called Ontario Property Deals. One thing that we have when joining our buyers list is a question that says, are you willing to lend money privately for uh, X percent return or double digit return? And then people will click yes or no, right? The people who click yes, we're planning to throw them on a drip campaign, a drip marketing campaign in which they're going to receive several consecutive emails kind of talking about private money, educating them on private money, right? 
how they can loan us money if they want to get involved in some of our deals. So we're, we're exploring the drip campaign and it, and on top of the drip campaign, we're also putting material on updating our personal life and personal projects. So it helps people who are maybe not as familiar with us to know, like, and trust us. That's ultimately the three things that people need before they loan you money or even partner with you. A lot of like raising private money and joint venture capital. I find it's the exact same, almost the exact same skill set, right? So really any material that I put out is, is targeted towards making someone either know me better, like me better, or trust me better by, by building, by, I guess, like me providing them expertise in real estate, liking me by, by, um, obviously giving some of my personal life and my personality out there and uh, trusting me by showing them projects that I've done previously, people who have lent me money in the returns that they made. Um, in terms of the structure and of private money, it literally changes all the time. I don't have the same structure with any one partner. It depends on the particular asset that we buy. Some assets that we buy, we can get a traditional commercial mortgage on it. And then we want to go fully levered. I know we talked about the dangers of leverage, but some deals are just juicy enough to fully leverage because they'll cash flow fully leveraged. Um, so we'll, we'll get like 75% loan to value. And then we'll want to find a private lender who's comfortable loaning 25% loan to value second in charge. Uh, right. So we're fully leveraged at that point. Not every private lender is okay with that. So we need to find a particular private lender for that. And then we structure terms accordingly. One private lender that I've been chatting to recently for one of our deals, um, they're loaning 100% loan to value plus construction costs, right? So everything, um, they're loaning everything, but the interest is ridiculously high, but it still makes sense number wise. So they're charging us 20% interest, which is really high, but they're tagging that to the very end. So we don't pay anything out of pocket until our project is completed, right? So there's so many, like joint ventureships, Private lending is the same way. There's so many creative ways you can go about it. It's just a matter of what you can negotiate, what the other party's needs and interests are, and then you kind of work to find a middle ground, right? And it also depends on a project by project basis. That's awesome. Wow, cool. So yeah, creativity in real estate. That's why I love it. I just, that's why I enjoy it. So in that, so what does the, your future goal in real estate, what do they look like? Yeah. So recently I've been focusing on more active uh, revenue, liquid capital strategy. So wholesaling, as I mentioned earlier, and the reason being is since I left my job, I mean, cash flow is obviously great, but I invest in real estate primarily for long-term wealth and cash flow is like a small supplement towards my income. Right. So I realized that I needed more active strategies if I wanted to sustain a decent lifestyle. Um, not not working a corporate job. So explore the world of wholesaling. And that's really where my shift and focus has been over the last couple of months, really. So Waylon Miguel, I mentioned him a couple of times. He, he and I are partnered on Ontario property deals. He focuses a lot on the acquisition side of things because he's a sales, he's a sales director in a big tech company. I focus more on the operational side of things and on the disposition side of things. So I'm what's called an integrator. And uh, Waylon would be the visionary, the visionary in terms of high level planning of the company, strategic direction. Uh, it's a lot of skills that he got in corporate that he can pull over to the wholesaling business. And for myself, I come from a consulting background, strategy background, worked in numerous internships and, and full-time jobs revolving around that. So he has some big plans and sometimes not like I, I like we have to bounce ideas back and forth and I have to put those plans to action or sometimes I'll be like, have you considered X, Y, Z, right? So it's really a pairing between the two. The focus is to grow that into a seven figure business and then systemize it because we don't be, we don't want to work in the business right now. I'm working like 60 hours still a week, which is like 
crazy. I don't want to be doing that. But the ideal goal is to systemize it, right? Hire people on board so that they can take the day-to-day operations and Will and I can both focus on just the high-level task of the business. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I, ironically, Will and I, my first job ever out of uh, university was Xerox. And, uh, and so he used to work at Xerox too. <laughs> and then we reconnected at the right club at one of our, our you know, live networking events. And he's like, do you remember me? And, you know, we started talking and I'm like, oh my God, that's so awesome. funny. So obviously, you know, wholesaling, I think even in the last two to three years has really taken Canada, you know, and, and put Canada from a wholesaling perspective, like on the map, because before this, you, you hear about wholesaling and it wasn't so much done here, you know, and I think, I think maybe originally, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe Luke Boyron really, really took it and like built a, built a scalable business. And now there's a few others uh, as well that are really doing a good job. So obviously, like you said, you're, you're working 60 hours a week, you know, it's not for everybody. This is active income. This is like, uh, you know, another job in a sense, but at least you're making yourself wealthy. What are some of the things that you're doing? Like if somebody wants to find some off-market opportunities, maybe not necessarily scale to this, the way that you're doing, but they may want to buy one for themselves. Like what are some ways that they can look for some, some opportunities off-market? Yeah, definitely. So there are a couple of ways that you can go about it. And I'll go over the low cap, low cost, no cost strategies, because I know a lot of people starting off and in investing, they don't have a ton of capital to start with. I would suggest mailers. However, mailers are quite costly, right? So um, the our second greatest lead source, believe it or not, is just networking with people. So more of the recent deals that we've been sending off is because of other newer real estate investors who have somehow ran across an off-market lead. Maybe it was because they bought a rental property and the neighbor beside, they had a good conversation with them and the neighbor knew someone else who was looking to sell. Also because they have been making phone calls to anyone who touches, sees, and smells real estate. So um, pest control people, divorce lawyers, what else is there? Property management, property management. They know, they know people who are distressed landlords. Maybe they know they're managing properties where no one is paying rent. Right. And that person might be looking to sell. Right. So those are some great ways to find off market leads. That's been a huge source for us. Right. We don't actually do it ourselves, but we have, I guess what we call bird dogs do that for us. So really just call anyone who touches sees and smells real estate. If you make one phone call a day, 365 phone calls a year, you're going to get one off-market deal, definitely. And also um, what we found success in doing, and this is like a longer turnaround time, um, but I've heard success stories from this as well, and we've also done it, is, is that we've been messaging for rent ads because there are a lot of landlords who might be trying to rent out a place, but are having trouble finding someone to rent it or having a high quality tenant rent it, right? Because the property might be in mediocre condition, which you can see through the rental photos, might not be in a great area for whatever reason. So I message all of these for rent ads, which is super easy to do, right? And say, hey, look, I'm not interested in renting your place, but if you ever have considered selling your place, I'll be more than happy to put a cash offer, right? And then a lot of the times you'll get no's, you'll get no responses, but Every once in a while, you'll have someone say, yes, like I'm interested. We made actually, I, I, I did that before and I made about like a 60K profit on a deal. Just closed on it, wholetailed it. And that was it. And that was just from a full rent ad. And there was another investor, Josh Doyle. He made, what is it? Like a 70 or 80K fee by doing that same exact strategy. And he got like a deal from Burlington and then sold it in 24 hours, right? Um, so it is, a, it is a viable strategy. What you need to realize is that a lot of these hustle high energy strategies 
they do take a while, right? Like it's not like you can just kick back and wait. You got to like go out and actually grind and get it. And it could take three or four months till you get your first deal. But man, imagine you do that for three, four months and you like Josh, you land a 80K fee on something. That's That makes it all worth it, right? And there's no, there's really minimal cost involved in it. That's excellent. And are you still buying yourself like some properties in this crazy market? I guess you're seeing off market. So you get first dibs, I assume, or... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we are, I am still buying properties in this market, but at a considerably slower pace. And the deals that I buy have to be like, they have to be pretty, pretty good deal. So it needs to be obviously under market value, which fortunately for me in the industry that I'm in, all of the deals that I touch and see are, are under market value. But then there also needs to be a way to strategically renovate it. Um, whether that be adding bedrooms, bathrooms, a secondary suite. So I can like double hedge myself. I can hedge myself by buying under market value. And then also on top of that, I can hedge myself by um, strategically renovating a place. Another point that I do want to bring up is that typically for the most part, I'm not saying that this is going to happen in the future, but rent prices don't really drop off during uh, a recession, right? Um, there are some exceptions like core downtown, but that was for very particular reason, right? That's because there's no students. Um, all of the service workers went back home, right? So that's very specific. But in general, um, like if you were investing in, I don't know, Windsor, Brantford, so on and so forth, during recession, your rent prices are kind of still going to be leveled off flat, even if it takes a small dip. If you have a good product, if your place is renovated nicely, it's in a decent area, then it, you're still going to have demand for that rental product. And if you can run a scenario where if you have to cut rents by 10%, are you still able to cash flow or be neutral, ideally cash flow, then you're you're hedged against a downturn, right? But that is not to say to go out and still over leverage yourself. It's something that I'm cognizant of. Um, I'm not I'm not buying like 10 deals a month or anything like that. I'm I'm doing it at a sustainable pace, or at least what I believe is sustainable pace. Yeah, I mean, like, so like for like a province like Ontario, I think, you know, I 100% agree with you, like the vacancy rates in most of the, you know, southern Ontario areas are like 2% or less, right? So we have a shortage issue by the time, even if there is a recession, I mean, in my opinion, that means more people are getting to rent regardless. Um, but then, you know, I, I, get, I can't speak for the US because their US, you know, if there's areas already with, with an 8% vacancy, at some point they may need to pivot and you and you saw that in the US from you know 08 and 09 some areas there they pivoted to try to attract more more tenants and often those are in areas are, that are or, or um, you know cities that are not controlled by rent control I think because we're in an area that has rent control I mean I'm looking at like literally every single property I own right now and as of the last like two years, everybody that's that's still in there is like four to five hundred dollars a month behind. That's how much it's gone up. But I, but I can't say the same for you know Edmonton or, or I mean Francois. I mean I know you invest in, in Eastern Canada now. Has that changed for you in, in Eastern Canada, Francois? So up there, out there, what's nice is yeah, you can increase rent and then adjust it to market value. So it's really excellent. But then vacancy turnover tends to be a little higher. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword. So when there is rent control, rents tend to be higher, which is weird. It should be the opposite. But And when there is no rent control, then you have to offer a decent rent because tenants and landlords have more of a conversation. It's more open. So it's been excellent. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it just depends on what the market, but I think just going back to what Austin, you were saying, and I think it's very, it's very valid is, is don't over leverage. And, and even just you, like, you had a good point there. Like if you had to drop rents by 10%, you know, are you still okay? And, and at what point are you, are you potentially not okay? So I, I think, I think that's a great opportunity, you know, opportunity to look at your portfolio. Same thing. I mean, if, if rates, if interest rates go up, I mean, you can always lock in if you're on variable, but, but at what point, you know, can you go up before you're like, mm, this is getting really, really tight. So it's, it's good to like stress test your portfolio. And I think that there's a new stress test yesterday at the time that we're recording this, um, you know, in, in early April that, that just came out that they're, you know, I think they're starting to, to want to slow things down a little bit without like causing some, some craziness, but, you know, again, stress test your portfolio at what point, you know, are you still able to keep going? And, uh, and this is why we don't want to be buying things that are not going to cash flow, even though the cash flow in some, some provinces like Ontario is not going to be as good as, as, you know, other provinces or, or potentially even the U S um, you know, cash flow is still important, even if it's, it's not, you know, uh, hundreds and, and a few, you know, thousand dollars of cash flow, it still needs to be there to help you take the waves of the up and down. Absolutely. Yeah. Cash flow is a, is, I, I see it as a hedge, right. And then there, the asset is the wealth accumulation. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. So the next part of the podcast, Austin, when I mean, we can keep talking to you for forever, I'm sure, you know, we'll have to bring you back at some point and see where you're at at that point in time, but we are going to go into our lightning round. Are you ready to play? I am ready. <laughs> All <laughs> I'll right. Keep the answer short this time. <laughs> this week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. So answers, first that comes to mind, we will ask you four questions. Everybody gets the same four. All right, so question number one, Austin, what is the best advice that you have ever received from another investor or at a networking event? Yeah, uh, I heard this from another investor. I believe it's a quote. I don't know who said the quote, but I have the quote right here. Don't compare your behind the scenes with someone else's highlight reel. And I think that this is super important in the, the era of social media. I find myself caught up, like I'm a pretty competitive guy for better or for worse. So I find myself making irrational decisions when I see like someone, like it is motivating seeing someone scale quickly, but then now you start benchmarking, comparing yourself against this. Oh, we started at the same time. Like, let me start buying more and more assets. And you start neglecting things like numbers. Um, you start over leveraging yourself. You start not, you, you don't make the best decisions when you're overly competitive and just trying to acquire and I find that in social media, and I'm even guilty of it, as much as I try to be transparent, you're never going to be fully transparent. There's always going to be stuff that like it's not appropriate for social media or, or like it's stuff that's like, hmm, I don't feel comfortable sharing it just yet. That's happening behind the scenes. Whereas uh, a lot of social media, you're showing your accomplishments, right? You're giving advice. You're sharing like financial motivation, freedom quotes. Um, and I just need to understand that I'm on my own journey, right? I have my own goals and not to get caught up with FOMO or what everyone else is doing. Yeah, that's great advice. Awesome. 
Thank you. Yes, the FOMO is so... <laughs> that's what we're seeing in the market right now. So uh, next question is, what is your favorite resource for real estate investing? Anything, book, training, a person, an event? Yeah, my favorite resource is definitely Masterminds. I never understood the, the value of it until I actually joined one. Um, so I'm in Corey's coaching program. I'm also in a group, a US-based group, Seven Figure Altitude. And then I also meet up with a couple of investors um, via Zoom every, every month or so. And it's just awesome because you're, going, you're, you're talking with people who are on the same journey, same path as you, or maybe doing different strategies, but it's a more tight-knit community it's usually around like just you know like it's less than 100 people um so you can have more relationships where I, where i find that uh, some large events you like if you're if you you need to really make an effort to connect with someone right because there are just so many people there so yeah i mean definitely masterminds is a huge resource for me bounce ideas with people build like actual long-term sustaining relationships and the narrower the mastermind is, um, and we're not trying to be exclusive or anything, but the more narrower the mastermind is, the more you can connect and build a long-term relationship with these people. Yeah, absolutely. Like they say, you're the average of the five people you hang out the most with. So there's some great people that you can uh, you can meet and hang out with at uh, events like that. Awesome. Number three, what is the one attribute in your opinion that has made you most successful? Yeah, I would say grit. So grit, it was a book also written by Angela Duckworth. Uh, and essentially what that is, is like perseverance, consistency over a long period of time towards a meaningful goal, right? And I think that's what separates a lot of successful investors from those who are not investing or not as successful in the real estate world. And it, it could be, it could mean that we're a bit hard headed at times, right? Because we're overly like dedicated to our craft and to real estate. But I don't think I'm talented by any means or or any of us really have any special circumstances to make us successful investors. It's just that we work hard and we're consistent with it. Some very smart people find the need that they don't have to work as hard or they can work hard, but they're not doing it over a period of a year or two years, right? Real estate doesn't happen overnight, like success in real estate. But I think all of us in, in this group, we're, we're hard workers. We might not necessarily have the inherent talent, but we're consistent, Right. Um, yeah, that, that's what separates me from, or not separates me. It's answering like an interviewee question. That's what I feel like it, it makes me a successful investor. Excellent. Yeah. It's so true. Consistency. It's like everything like fitness and anything in life. You have to be consistent. Like these podcasts too, were consistent. So that's how you become successful. Exactly. Our next and final question. What do you typically do on a Sunday morning? On a Sunday morning, so I live alone now. Well, not alone. I live with my girlfriend now. So every weekend we head back home. Like she goes back to her family. I go back to my family. And uh, I mean, family has been a huge cornerstone for me in my entire life. Right? And it's also cultural. So Sunday, just kick back, hang out with family. We either go for walks, drives, or just, just hang around the house and watch TV. Nothing exciting. Sounds nice and relaxing. Awesome. So thank you for playing the light lightning round, Austin. And where can our Right Club community reach out if they wanted to know more, connect with you? How can they do that? Yeah, so follow me on Instagram at AustinYay6. Yay is Y-E-H, not Y-A-Y. And uh, my link tree is there. Like, yeah, you can see all of the other contact information on there. Awesome. And final question that we ask everybody, what is your final last words of advice for a community? Final last words of advice. Hmm, let me think. Quick, yeah. but like powerful words. 
man, it has to go back to that quote. Don't compare your behind the scene with someone else's highlight reel, right? Like we're seeing FOMO happen right now. Like all of these home buyers that are just constantly bidding things up to unreasonable, what I consider unreasonable prices, right? Um, yeah, I mean, just, just understand what your goals are. Don't get caught up in anyone else's journey and just focus on your own goals. Amazing, Austin. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, congratulations again on leaving the nine to five corporate world and uh, creating your own destiny. Congrats. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Francois. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this podcast, Francois. I mean, he is so inspirational. He is a go-getter. He talked about grit. He had lots of, you know, great points for uh, for us to say, you know, we can we can start applying some of the cool information uh, the, or the great information that he provided us. Do you have a, a big takeaway on your end, Francois, about, uh, about the podcast or, or a part of it? I do. So, yes. So two things he mentioned that were a bit different. One of them was scaling back, which we don't hear much. We always talk about growth, growth and go crazy and buy more. He said, no, no, take a, take a step back, breathe, <laughs> put in systems. So that's number two. So systems, uh, taking a bit of time to make sure everything works well. That was really excellent, I thought, and great advice from him. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is, is similar, I think, to what you said, but it's it's not always the right way to go with the joint venture route, right? There's pros and cons to both and, you know, utilizing private money in, in some people, in some cases, that might be the easier way or the better way to, to scale and, and take a little bit more control. And then the other thing, you know, I think is, is important to note is he's, he's a go-getter. He's, you know, high activity, he's high energy, and it doesn't mean that it's for, for everybody, but he started a whole really successful wholesaling business. Um, by the way, if you're not on the wholesaler list, reach out to be on the wholesaler list so you can get the, the deals that they, they find. But that is another job, right? So, you know, again, chooses to keep busy doing something else. Not for everybody, but I think it's, it is really cool because now he's got his passive income, uh, JV and in, in, in his own stuff. Um, but then he's also got a, a different source of active income. And, uh, and some of the JV fees, that, I mean, we talked about, uh, you know, 50, 70 grand. I mean, I've seen them as high as 200 for some bigger properties. Um, you can make some good money. Of course, it, it takes time. You know, it's, it is a grind, but there can be some, some good cash on that. So on that note, uh, right club community, thanks for joining us again. Francois, thank you for being an awesome co-host and co-hosting this with me. And, uh, it was awesome having you on first podcast done in the books. Yay. Thank you. Come grow <laughs> with us. So I've grown today. That's great. <laughs> awesome. Right club community. Thank you so much. See you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Right Club podcast and joining our community of real estate investors online at therightclub.com, where the focus is about helping you grow. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks from your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi.